because of his purity and his radiance and the fact that he's different than us. And we serve a wonderful and awesome God. I want to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 8 again this morning as we continue our series through this book together. Uh, on November 29th of 1991, 80 to 100 kilometer hour per hour winds uh, that were c- carrying topsoil and dust created an intense dust storm along a highway in California. Uh, visibility was essentially reduced to zero, and people suddenly found themselves driving blind down the highway, which resulted in a five-kilometer pileup of 104 wrecked and burning vehicles. Uh, Tragically, in that incident, 17 people died and 150 more were injured. Uh, Vehicles were strewn all over the highway and down into the ditches. Uh, Unable to see anything, driver after driver just plowed straight into disaster. Uh, Blindness is a terrible reality in a broken world. Um, It's something that's a a byproduct of the curse of sin. The inability to see, whether it be physical or spiritual. Physical blindness ails many people all around the world, but even more prevalent than that is spiritual blindness, which impacts every single person, according to the Bible. And as with that pile up in California years ago, spiritual blindness it leaves people just plowing towards disaster. But Mark 8 offers us hope. And, and maybe you've come in here this morning and you feel like, man, my life is just a total wreck. In fact, my life feels like that story you described on that highway in California. Or maybe you feel like you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, maybe you look at your life and go, wow, like I've had some serious lapses of judgment in recent days. Or maybe you feel like you don't understand life or what it's about. Uh, Maybe you even think, well, you look at your life and go, man, everything's great in my world, and maybe there are things you're just not seeing. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, and he wants to open yours. And maybe he's already started opening yours. He wants to open them further. This morning, we're going to consider two great miracles, the first of which is this. Jesus opens the eyes of the physically blind. I want you to look with me at chapter 8, verses 22 to 26 as we begin. We read there, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not enter the village. Uh, The events here take place in Bethsaida. This is the very last of Jesus' Galilean miracles. He spent most of the early chapters of this book in and around the Sea of Galilee, And for some basic context here, Mark's gospel essentially breaks into three different parts. The first portion focuses on Jesus in the Galilean uh, Capernaum area and his public ministry. That's what we've seen. uh, Every text that we've looked at so far in Mark, it's been that. And now we're entering the second portion of the book, which focuses on Jesus' private ministry to his disciples. Things are about to change. Things are about to shift. And then the third and final portion ends with his passion, the cross of Jesus Christ, and everything that leads up to that, and ultimately his resurrection. 
Well, it's the final miracle of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, this particular healing, and the account right after it marks a major shift. Things are changing. Jesus is moving his focus away from his public ministry uh, in Galilee. Now and he's going to focus, he's going to narrow it, he's going to drill down on time with his disciples and these 12 men and his private ministry to them. And in many ways, this final Galilean miracle, it's like all the others. I mean, you, you look at these miracles and after a while, they all seem relatively pretty much the same. And this one's no different, generally speaking, um, And yet there's one way in which it's unlike any other miracle recorded, not just in Mark, but in any of the gospel accounts. So let's start with some of the ways that it's the same, and then I'll highlight one way that it's different. First of all, like all the other healing miracles, it's a personal miracle. Jesus healed this man, as was his custom, with a touch. In verse 22, people bring this blind man to Jesus, and the language of the text is they beg Jesus to touch him. Jesus, please, please touch this man. It's the way in which they were asking him to heal him. And in verse 23, Jesus took the blind man, we read, by the hand. And verse 23 also says that he laid his hands on him. And then in verse 25 again, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes a second time. We've seen the touch of Jesus again and again in Mark. Frequently as he heals people, he's coming into physical contact with them. That all started back in chapter 1, verse 31, with Simon's mother-in-law. And we read there that Jesus went uh, into this room that she was in. And and 131 says he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up. And then later in that chapter, chapter 1, verse 41, Jesus encounters a leper, a person that nobody else would touch. He was unclean. Uh, In fact, he, he was an outcast in society. Do not touch this man, was everybody's thought. And in chapter 1, verse 41, we read, Moved with pity or compassion, he, tu- he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And then we get to chapter 5 and there's this account of Jairus. And he runs up to Jesus. His daughter is back home. And Jairus says to Jesus, My daughter is at the point of death. And what's his request? Jesus, come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. That's chapter 5, verse 23. The story gets interrupted by the woman with the issue of blood, and then at the end of the chapter, the story continues, and we read Jesus shows up at the house in chapter 5, verse 41, taking her by the hand. Okay, he's touching her. He said to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And as I mentioned Uh, As Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, there's this woman that interrupts the account, this woman with an issue of blood. She's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. In chapter 5, verse 28, she's saying in her mind again and again to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. If I can just come into contact with Jesus, I'll be healed. The sick in Gennesaret, chapter 6, verse 56, as many as touched it, as many, uh, the fringe of his garment were made well. And then chapter 7, verses 32 to uh, 33, we've got a deaf man in, in the Gentile region of the Decapolis. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And we read there that he put his fingers into his ears and he touched his tongue. It was Jesus' manner to heal with a touch. And here is one, Jesus, who often touches the the unclean and the needy, people that nobody else would touch. 
The healing here and, and that we're looking at today, like all the others, it's a personal miracle. It's characterized by care for the individual person, the individual soul. It's characterized by compassion and touch. And of course, this is our Lord. This is our God. Ministering to people who know the pain and sorrow of the curse. It's a personal miracle. And along with that, like all miracles, it's a powerful miracle. Look at verses 23 and 26 and just think as I read this of of the power. Think about what's happening here. 23 down to 26. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Uh, After Jesus touched this man's eyes two times, verse 25 records for us that his sight was restored. It may have been that this man uh, had seen for several years and then lost his sight. um, But his sight now is restored. He can see. Jesus powerfully opens the eyes of the blind. On one occasion... Uh, Matthew eleven two to 6 records this. When John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of, of the Christ, John starts wondering, well, like, I, need a, I want some more information here. And so we read, when J- John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. First of all, the blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why that response? Why is John wondering about all this? Well, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And Jesus is saying what Isaiah prophesied, that's what you're witnessing. There is only one person who could powerfully open the eyes of the blind, and it's Jesus. You live in a broken world, don't you? A world that is, is so messed up by sin and the curse and all that comes with that, the decay, the rot, the trouble. You live in a world like that, and within that world, Jesus displays his power. He's personally displaying his power. I want to ask you, do you believe that? It's a personal miracle. It's powerful, and also here, it's a perfect miracle. After Jesus touches this man's eyes the first time, he could see, but not perfectly. The man said in verse 24, I see men, but they are like trees walking. In other words, I can see more than I I couldn't see before. Now I can see, but it's fuzzy, it's blurry, and I, I can't see quite clearly. The first touch was partial healing, but after the second touch, he has perfect sight. Look at verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, perfectly. 
every time that we have seen Jesus heal someone, it's, it's been perfect. And uh, maybe you could just note you don't see these periods of like people convalescing. Jesus healed them and then they laid around for two weeks and then they were better. You don't see any of that. You don't see anything that often characterizes what people, uh, so quote unquote healers do today. When Jesus healed someone, it was boom, it's done. Perfect healing. What Jesus does is truly unique. The first three descriptors, personal, powerful, perfect, essentially describe all of Jesus' healing miracles. But this final descriptor is unique to this miracle alone. It's a progressive miracle, and intentionally so. It's not as if Jesus made this first attempt to heal this guy and thought, oh, ugh, didn't quite work out like I thought. <laughs> didn't quite heal him there. Maybe I'll try again. No, that's not what's happening. Jesus opened this man's eyes progressively on purpose, and this is the only recorded two-stage miracle that Jesus performed. You, you won't find another one. No explanation, though, is offered in the text for why Jesus did it this way. Why did Jesus touch him once and then touch him twice and then he was healed? Well, the context does seem to possibly offer some clues Contextually, this miracle of giving sight to the physically blind is located only in Mark's gospel. Matthew, Luke, and John do not include it. Only Mark. And he includes it right here in this particular spot. Right where? Well, right at the end uh, of this first section of the gospel that I told you about. Jesus is done with his, his public ministry around Galilee. And now his attention is focused on his disciples who... Oh, by the way, right in this exact same context are wrestling with a blindness of their own. And these men will spend their lives, their ministry lives, serving and ministering to people with that same kind of blindness. People who are spiritually blind. This miracle also takes place in private. Verse 23 tells us that Jesus led the blind man out of the village before he healed him. Uh, just so you know, it's not the first time that Jesus has done that. But maybe we should ask, if that's the case, then who's the audience? It's, it's not um, the village. It's not a massive crowd of people. It's this man and the 12 disciples. His disciples are the, are the audience of this one. And this account is also right between two accounts that are focused on the disciples' spiritual blindness and sight. This whole section that we're in is focused on blindness and sight. And this is sandwiched right between uh, two paragraphs on spiritual blindness and sight. Could it be, as one writer stated, that perhaps the twelve needed to learn that every miracle would not be instantaneous? In some cases, the victory of divine power over sin and sickness would be gradual. And in fact, right here in this context, we're seeing that uh, the opening of the disciples' eyes was gradual. It was a process. It was slow. At times, it was painful. Spiritual sight and understanding are often given by God progressively. Uh, that is true. If you are a Christian, that's true of you. And it's true of those you would seek to minister to. As with this blind man, what is often needed is yet another touch, we might say, by the Lord. More sight given by the Lord. Another touch from his light-giving word. Another touch from his insight-giving spirit. Another touch from his grace-infused people. Jesus opens the, the eyes of the blind, and typically that is a process. 
uh, I don't know about you, but I think most of us love instant gratification. When you want something, don't you just wish you could just have it now? All the way from the time when, when we're kids, we think like that. As young boys, my brother and I really wanted a particular video game console. This was back in the 90s, and at the time, it, I think it was a Nintendo 64 that we wanted, and they costed $100 back then. And my brother and I, man, we need one of those. I mean, our lives will be complete if we have a Nintendo 64. The only problem was that we didn't have any money. We didn't have an allowance. It didn't work that way in my house. I mean, we had nothing. And so we wanted this thing now, but our parents said that if we wanted it, that we were going to have to buy it. So we got this massive pickle jar, and little bit by little bit, we put every quarter, every dollar that we earned or made into that pickle jar until eventually, months later, we had saved up $100. Buying that Nintendo 64 and bringing it home was so exciting. But getting it sure was a long process. I think actually in some ways the, the weight and the anticipation and the working to get it made it that much better, right? But most of us don't like to wait. We want things now. But God, sometimes, he, sometimes he'll do that. Sometimes he will hand us something in a moment. He will give us something in a moment. He will do something great in a moment. But often he works over long periods of time. And in an increment after increment after increment. God can do whatever it is that God wants to do. But often he does it slowly and methodically and in stages. Do you trust him? Do you trust his process? Do you trust his plan? Are you willing to let God be God? Jesus opens the eyes of the physically blind. There is no miracle that Jesus is incapable of. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do. Do you believe that and are you willing to let God do the things that God does his own way and in his own time? Second great miracle, Jesus opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. And I've begun to touch on that already, but uh, Jesus has been in the process of doing that with his 12 disciples. He's been in the process of opening their blind eyes. He's already opened them to a certain extent, but there's a lot more sight to be given in verses 27 to 30, these verses mark a mountain peak in the Lord's endeavor as Peter confesses both for himself and, and, and seemingly for the rest of the disciples who Jesus is. And in these verses, we see an inescapable question, and we, we see that's followed by some various perspectives on that question, and finally, the one and only acceptable answer. And so let's start with the inescapable question. Look at verse 27. It says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. <coughs> and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Uh, that is the inescapable question. And that has been the focus of the first half of the, the book so far. Who is this man? Who is this guy? No one could escape that question, and frankly, neither can you. Who is Jesus, have your eyes been opened to see him for who he, who he is? Do you know who he is? Do you see who he is? Who is this man who, as we've seen, opens blind people's eyes, who unplugs the ears of the deaf, who causes the lame to walk, who sets free the demon-possessed, who raises the dead to life, treads on the waves of the sea, calms the raging storm, 
feeds the hungry crowds, teaches with unrivaled authority, or even sees straight into the hearts of men and knows precisely what they're thinking, even though they haven't said a word. Who is he? Well, maybe I should ask you that question. Who do you think that he is? A great moral teacher? Maybe you'd say he is the greatest man who has ever lived. Or maybe your perspective would be a little bit more skeptical. He's a figment of people's imagination, or he was real, but those things didn't really happen. Who is he? C.S. Lewis famously quipped that Jesus is either a liar, lunatic, or a lord. He set up this interesting uh, trilemma. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond with some of the various perspectives, some of which may even uh, be outside of what Lewis, C.S. Lewis had said there. But the religious establishment tried to claim that Jesus had come basically, like he's, he must be from Satan. And, and he's, the things that he's doing, he's doing in the power of and with, with authority from Satan. However, the perspective of the common man in that time was generally positive. Look at verse 28. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, and they told him. Here's what word on the street is. People think you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Word on the street is that Jesus is one of the Old Testament prophets. Come back. Or he's another prophet who's come in their wake. Essentially, he's some kind of prophet. Do you realize, just think with me about this for a moment. Do you realize that you can have a very favorable assessment of Jesus? You can think of Jesus in very positive terms without properly identifying him. You can think Jesus is great. You can think Jesus is awesome. You can have, feel, feel no ill will towards Jesus without properly identifying him. Most people's perspectives on Jesus fall woefully short and they they represent misunderstandings. They represent blindness. No, you don't understand. You don't see. Jesus remains veiled to many people. They don't see him. Who is he? Big picture, all three of the opinions about Jesus that are mentioned in verse 28 about him being some kind of prophet, All three of those views viewed Jesus as someone who, in essence, prepared the way for God's salvation. But all of those opinions were wrong because Jesus is not one who merely prepares people for God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. And in verse 29, Jesus asked his disciples, okay, you've told me what word on the street is. You've told me what everybody's saying and what everybody's thinking. That's nice. It's lovely. It's relatively positive. It's wrong. Who do you say that I am? What about you? What did the disciples think? And maybe we could pause right here at this moment and ask that exact same question to you. Right now, today as you sit here, who do you think Jesus is? If you had to put it in a a phrase or a sentence, Jesus is, you explain it. Who is he? Well, Peter blurts out the one and only acceptable answer. He says, you are the Christ. I don't know if you realize this, but up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, 
No human being has accurately declared or at least said out loud who Jesus is. The narrator did. Back at the very first verse, Mark 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God the Father accurately identified Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 11. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You might find it interesting that demons on three different occasions already in the Gospel of Mark have accurately identified who Jesus is. Chapter 1, verse 24, a demon calls him the Holy One of God. Chapter 3, verse 11, another demon, you are the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. All three of those, those last quotations are coming from the lips of demons. They're accurately identifying him, but no one else has. And now finally in chapter 8, verse 29, Peter declares on behalf of his disciples, you are the Christ. You are, to put it in in, in the language of an Old Testament Jewish person, you are the Messiah. Peter just confessed the deity of Jesus and his Messiahship. Messiah means uh, anointed one. Jesus is God. And Peter's affirming here that all of Israel's hopes and the hopes of the entire world, consequently, are wrapped up in you. And then look look what happens in verse 30. After Peter makes this incredible confession, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. There were so many misconceptions in people's minds surrounding this this language of Messiah. Messiah meant anointed one. And and many of the Jews thought, you you think in the Old Testament how a king was anointed with oil and there's going to be this king that comes and he's going to be in the the lineage of David and sit on his throne and people thought he's going to, this king's going to come and he's going to rule and he's going to reign and he's going to conquer and he's going to set everything right. And of course, all those things were true but not in the, the sense that the average person thought. People thought, well, he's going he's gonna to take over Rome and he's, he's going to make all this right like David. And Jesus is about to teach these men that his Messiahship means that he is going to suffer. That the cross actually is the way to his crown. He will, he will go, he will take his crown by way of the cross. The eyes of the spiritually blind have been opened and and Peter's just made this incredible confession and yet that we see there's this massive need that they continue to be open. There's so much that these men do not understand. But they will. In the pages to come, their eyes will be opened more and more and more. Last year, (coughs) an ophthalmologist painstakingly removed 23 disposable contact lenses from a a patient's eye. Apparently, that patient didn't know that before you put the new one in, you need to take the old one out. So if that's you and you're doing that, you should stop. But this person's vision blurred more and more and more with each contact lens that she put in. And finally, it got so bad that she sought medical help. And the ophthalmologist got in there and one by one removed all of these. And eventually, her sight was restored. She could see clearly again. Your spiritual blindness is a problem. And all of us have this problem. (coughs) And it has the potential to get worse and worse progressively, like what was happening with those contact lenses. It get worse over time. 
but there is someone that can help you. There is someone who can help you and someone who can help me to see. And in fact, to see better than we've ever seen before. Jesus opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. I'd like to take a, a few moments from uh, both of these accounts. Jesus opening the eyes of, of this physically, the healing this man physically, his blind eyes. And now what we see, Jesus opening the eyes spiritually of his disciples. What do we do with that? Well, I think we could talk for a moment or two about, about the realm of, of salvation. How is a person delivered from their sin? How is a person saved from the wrath of God? How is a person cleansed and washed? And how do they know they're on their way to heaven and a part of, of the kingdom of God? I want to encourage every single person here to make the exact same confession that Peter made. Peter confessed, you are the Christ. I want to ask you, as God opened your eyes to see what Peter saw, are you sitting here saying and affirming, Jesus is God? And if there's any hope of deliverance for any people ever at any period of time, it's through him. Has God opened your eyes to see what Peter saw? Do you believe that Jesus is God and are all of your hopes, are, is all of your confidence and trust pinned on Jesus, resting on Jesus? Will you confess that Jesus is Lord? Will you confess your sin to God, that God, I, I am a sinner who needs someone to save me. I need a Messiah, and my hopes are resting on you. Jesus talked about how, or he's about to talk about how he's going to suffer, how he's, in the days to come, he will suffer immensely as the king. And that's going to involve him ultimately going to a cross and dying. And essentially on that cross, Jesus was satisfying the wrath of God for your sin. You have sin. I have sin. We, we can't deal with that on our own. We can't make ourselves clean. And when Jesus went to the cross, God himself in the flesh, hanging on, on a cross on a tree, God the Father unleashed all of his wrath on Jesus. Not for the sin of Jesus. Jesus didn't have any of that, but for your sin and for mine. So that Jesus could take your punishment and your place and my punishment and my place. And what Jesus says that we must do, just like in the very first pages of Mark's gospel, is repent. God, you're right. The reason there's a cross and the reason Jesus died is because I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. And I need the cross of Jesus and I need his work. Jesus, will you save me? Will you cleanse me? Will you, will you make me your child? I believe. Make the same confession Peter made. And if you've already done that, I want to encourage you to ask God to use you as a tool in his hand to help other people see. Uh, you know, you actually can't make anybody see. You realize that, right? Like, as much as you would love to, you can't do that. None of us can. But God does use means. Uh, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That God opens up people's eyes as they hear the truth of God's word, as the gospel is shared with them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God uses people, everyday people like you and me, to share the truth of, of the good news about Jesus with other people. And God uses that many, many times, every single day, to open up people's eyes. God can use you 
as the means by which he opens blind eyes. Wouldn't it be great if all throughout your life God, God used you like that? He used you in people's lives um, to, do, to do a miraculous work in them. That'd be incredible. And I think we'd all be wise to just say, Jesus, will you use me like that? I want to be used like that. I want to I, I be, be in the, that action. God, would you use me? Will you help me to be a faithful um, proclaimer of your good news? Will you help me to love people and testify of you in word and deed so that people's eyes can be opened? I think from this text, we could also uh, think about Christian growth for a moment and how people grow and change, like what's happening in the lives of these men, the 12 disciples. Uh, One application that we can make is to seek time with Jesus if you want to grow. Okay, I want to grow. I want to change. You want to grow. You want to change. We all say, yep, I want to grow and I want to change. Great. Well, if that's the case, then seek time with Jesus if you want that to happen. The key to better eyesight is more and more time with Jesus. What's going to help these 12 men more than anything else is more time with Jesus, and Jesus stands ready to give them that. I mean, right here in the middle of this book, Jesus, is, his public ministry is more and more in the rearview mirror, and now he says, you 12 men, I'm going to focus my time with you. You are going to get my time like you would not believe. Do you realize that Jesus will give you his time too? And Jesus has, has spoken right here in his word, page after page, line after line. It's Jesus talking. These are his words. What should you and I do? Well, go be with him. If you want your eyes to be further open, you and I, we should go be with Jesus in his word. Also, he dwells among his people. We should go be with them. You will not spiritually grow if you are not spending substantial quality time with Jesus. It's just a simple fact of the Christian life. If you do not spend time with God and his word, if you do not read it for yourself, if you do not uh, faithfully hear it preached, you are going to struggle and struggle and struggle to grow. You have to have God's words, the words of Jesus, if you are going to grow. That is the path forward in the Christian life. These words give life and they give sight. And I I just want to challenge you, look at your life. How much time are you spending here? If you're not spending time with Jesus, you're you're not going to be growing. Or your, your growth is going to be much slower than it needs to be. Seek time with Jesus if you want to grow. Also, along with that, depend on Jesus if you want to grow. We could ask, why did Peter see? I mean, he makes this confession. His eyes have been opened further. You're the Christ. Why did Peter make that confession? (coughs) Why did he see? For the exact same reason that the man in the previous paragraph saw. God did a miracle for, for the blind man who he opened his eyes. And after Peter's great confession, Jesus says, it's the exact same way with you, Peter. In Matthew 16, verse 17, the parallel passage, uh, after Peter's great confession, we have the response of Jesus recorded. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's another name for Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. No man opened your eyes, but my Father 
who is in heaven. Whenever sight is given, it is always the sovereign, powerful, miraculous work of God. The disciples did not open their own eyes, and you will not do that for other people, and you will not do it for yourself. God does that. And God wants you to depend on him to use his word and to use his spirit and to use his people to further reveal himself to you every single day and to change you and change you and change you. And you also need to, do, to depend like that on him to do that in the lives of your children. You can't actually change them. You can modify their behavior. You can do all kinds of things, but you cannot change them. You can't change your loved ones. You, you can't change your unsaved neighbors. You can't twist their arms and, and, and force an authentic conversion. You can't do that with your family or coworkers. Uh, your fellow church member just sitting right across the aisle from you or front or behind you, you realize like you can't change that person as much as you may want to. We cannot open people's eyes and, and, and make change happen. But one of the ways that we can demonstrate our dependence on God, that, that we recognize he's the one that does that, is we can pray to him as if that's the case. Because it is, we can say, God, would you open my eyes? And God, would you open the eyes of this person or that person? Or God, would you do a work here? I recognize that if this is going to happen, it's going to be you. Further, follow Jesus' example of patiently loving people and of making significant and time investments in helping other disciples grow. That's what we're seeing Jesus do here. Think about how much time Jesus has given these men. I mean, we're here in chapter 8. Jesus has spent a long time with these guys, and they've been, I mean, I don't know how we say it nicely, a little bit slow. <laughs> Come on, guys. Like, and, and that's what we see all throughout the gospel. It's like, slowness, 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 sight, slowness, 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 sight. Are we moving backwards here for like, at times it's just painfully slow. Think about how much time Jesus gave these men, how patient he was with them. And even when they were slow and blind, what, what Jesus has modeled for you is what he wants you to do. You should, you and I should do the same. And remember that not every miracle of Jesus happens instantaneously. So I think one of the things following Christ's example that God wants us to do is be willing to play the long game. Okay, Jesus did that with his disciples. He invested in them over the period of, of several months, several years. And at times it was moving forward. At times it seemed like it was moving backwards. That's the type of disciple maker I want to be. That's the type of relationship I want to have with people. Be willing to play the long game and learn all that you can from Jesus' example uh, Jesus was the perfect disciple maker, right? I mean, do you think when Jesus taught, he ever did a poor job? Oh, like, Jesus, can you try to rephrase that? Because you were really confusing. Maybe what you said isn't what you meant you said. Like, or, like is, is he some kind of subpar teacher? Not at all. He's the perfect disciple maker, and yet his disciples still struggle to recognize what was right in front of them. And if the greatest teacher, so to speak, ever in the history of disciple-making, watched his followers slowly, painfully move forward. Don't you think it would be fair to expect that as we go out and we seek to make disciples and as we share truth and as we invest our lives in other people, that it just might be slow sometimes? 
It wasn't that he had a problem with communicating clearly or that he just didn't get these men. Discipleship takes time. People take time. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, and he wants to open yours. He wants to open the eyes of the people all around you. And why don't, as we wrap up here, we pray and ask that God would do that very thing in our midst and in our lives together this morning.